0: Welcome. I'm Lori Lee Benstock, host of a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Children are reluctant to report abuse for fear of not being believed or even worse, being punished. What if the abuse is by the hands of a close family member? From my own experience, I understand the fear of living with an abuser and the manipulation it took to keep me quiet. Today, child advocate Kathy Picard joins me and she is the author of Life With My Idiot Family, A True Story of Survival, Courage and Justice Over Childhood Sexual Abuse. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. This is great. We we have a message and a very common message that many share. And I hope by listening to this, that it makes them realize Like everybody should know that it's not their fault and they're not alone.
0: Absolutely. I know that that's, that's something that took me a long time to realize. Um, And in your book, your book, it was such a great book. Like I, I was, I was telling you, I couldn't put it down. I was staying up till four in the morning reading your book to the point where I was like okay well I need more time to squeeze in to listen to this book can you tell me a little bit about your story tell the audience about your story
1: I was sexually abused by the hands of a family member as you mentioned it was my stepfather and the abuse started when I was at the young age of seven years old seven until 17. 10 years, I gotta repeat that, 10 years, this abuse would happen at least three times a week. And a lot of people will say to me, well, you know what, you had it really bad, Kathy, 10 years. I have to say that a person being sexually abused one time is too much. So everybody that has been abused, it doesn't matter how many times. If you're sexually abused, one time is too much. And being sexually abused by this man you know, as a young girl, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know that I was being sexually abused. I thought it was a form of love, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting the I love yous by my mother. So by him telling me I love you constantly, I just, I wanted to please him. I wanted to do as I was told to do, right? I was that type of child. I did as I was told to do. And You know, the grooming process As many here, you know, you get to stay up late, you're gonna get gifts, you're going to be loved. You're, you know, all of those things happen as well as the threats. You know, he was an auxiliary police officer, so he had a gun in the home. So he would threaten me with the gun. He would say, Kathy, your parents are gonna get divorced if you tell, and it's gonna be your fault. Your dogs are going to be taken away. Your sisters are going to be put into foster homes. So all of those threats, that's what makes you not tell. That's what keeps you quiet. On top of him constantly saying, Kathy, it's our secret. Don't tell. I don't know how many times I heard that before. It's our secret. Don't tell. Mm -hmm. So I didn't. And I kept it a secret, Laura Lee, until I was 17 years old. Well, really, I I take that back. I told my grandmother Mm -hmm. at the age of nine. And when I did tell my mother's mother, she said, Kathy, we don't talk about this. Mm -hmm. So I figured what he was telling me, it's a secret, don't tell. And I kept that secret until the age of 28. And that's when I told my Aunt Judy and telling my Aunt Judy, who was petrified of my stepfather, she, again, another adult, telling me, keep it a secret, don't tell. And I did just as I was told to do until she passed away at the young age of 54. And Laura Lee, that's when I told everybody. My first stop, going to the police station and reporting this, because at that time I was still in fear of this man. And so filed a report, I told everybody from my coworkers, to my neighbors, to my friends. And I think I told it just out of fear that if something did happen to me, they would know who was to blame. Mm. So it felt good telling so many people because it shouldn't be a secret, right? The more people you tell, the more times you tell your story, it just, it's, it's part of the healing process. And that's why, you know, writing our story, putting it into a book, it was huge for us. It was healing for me. It was healing for my husband. Um, I, I have to say that it was reliving my past. So there were times, there were parts in the book, like you read, there were parts in the book that were reliving that abuse over again. So it was tough. There was crying nights writing it. And it took us five years to write it. But i'm glad that i did and you know it helps so many and a lot of people will say life with my idiot family you know they'll think it's a joke book but it's not we named it life with my idiot family because my mother called us for girls growing up idiots or ass holes, mm. and that's how we came up with the title life with my idiot family and the book came out in 2017, March 26 of 2017. And as you mentioned, it's on Audible. That we actually spoke ourselves, and that was hard. Again, you're reliving it again. But I'm glad that I used my own voice to tell the story, and my husband's voice is in there as well as the other people that had a part in in the story. But would I do it all over again? Of course I would. You know, but But my story not to tell my whole story because it's impossible you know with the time frame but i actually wanted i got angry and at the age of 17 that's when i told my stepfather this has to stop and he would beg one more time kathy just one more time and i go no it's gotta stop and if you keep asking me i'm going to tell and that's when the abuse finally stopped when i was able to use my voice and put a stop to what he was doing what encouraged and then i just, you? i don't know i i really don't know because it wasn't as as though it was something i learned in school it just it didn't feel right and i just knew that it wasn't right i don't know it was something inside of me just said it's not right and you have to put a stop to it. And so I did, I really don't know what, whatever become, you know, what made me do it, but I'm glad that I did.
0: People were enabling this, right? When you told your grandmother, shh, we don't talk about that. I can see why you're like, oh, okay, well, this is a secret. I don't like it, but you know, there are probably other things you don't like in, you know, that happens, right? So it's just probably one of those things.
1: Right? You didn't feel as though you were being, you know, harmed in any way. And the other, the person that really enabled it, speaking of enabling it, was my mother. Mm-hmm. You know, he had cleaning jobs. And I remember every Saturday, my mother saying to me, Kathy, go with them. You're going to make $20. Well, you know what? That $20 was not worth, you know, it wasn't worth what I had to do for that $20. And, um. That, that was hard, you know, and I have to say that that place where I would clean and empty baskets and make this $20, about four months ago, I revisited this place. Hmm. And that was so healing to go back. And now it's a store. But I would go back and see this is where the abuse took place. Hmm. And I never thought that I would be reliving places of where the abuse happened. But it, it was, it was really healing to do that. Wow. You know, in, in your book, you talk about
0: your mom actually knew this was happening. What did you, what, how did you find out and how, how did that make you feel personally that your mother, the wo- woman who's supposed to take care of you actually knew something was happening and
1: did not do anything? Yeah. And I never knew this, Laura Lee, until later on in life as an adult, when I was going through my court case and I called up the neighbor next door and she would tell me, your, ne- your mother would come next door and tell me what was going on. So she knew, you know, and she enabled it. You know, he was an alcoholic still to this day. I believe he still is. But she would say, go with him to go get his beer. You know, you're not gone for an hour. You know that something else was taking place. But, you know, she never would would admit that she knew what was going on. You know, but but I, I know because people told me that she would tell them what was going on. And that's, it's sad. And I, I just can't even imagine a mother or a father knowing that your child is being sexually abused and not putting a stop to it. But this happens more often than we know. And they stay in these relationships for money or for just to have someone in their life over the safety of the child. And who does that?
0: What was your relationship with your mother as a
1: child? She was not a loving mother. Um, In fact, she would never say the words, I love you. And I had asked her, I said, why don't you ever tell me that you love me? And her response was that my mother never says it to me. Poor excuse, I think, you know, you can change. But she would never say those words. I love you. And, and it was almost she was like angry. You know, she had me at a young age, but she would cut my fingernails, pull my ponytails, uh, punish me all the time. It It was just like a a very angry hatred childhood, you know, growing up, oh, you know, yeah, it wasn't every day that she was like that, you know, I was a Girl Scout and, you know, she would take me to the Girl Scout camp and that. and I was always so proud of my mother, my mother was beautiful, you know, young, young and beautiful. And when I would go on the field trips for the schools, she would chaperone. And I was always so proud. Yes, that's my mother. You know, she was so beautiful, but that was on the outside. On the inside, it was just not a good mother. Mm
0: -hmm. You found out that the father, your father who was abusing you was actually not your biological father. And you didn't find that out until much later. What happened?
1: What had happened was my stepfather adopted me at the age of four. And when I put that stop to that abuse at age 17, my mother, I remember her saying, I didn't have to have you if I didn't want to. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, your father is not your real father. Mm -hmm. And so I in turn asked her the question, well, who is my real father? And she said, you're never gonna meet him. He died in the army, in the service. Mm -hmm. And that was a total lie. And I didn't find out that from the age of 17. I didn't find out until age of 28. All of those years going by, I wanted to meet my real father, was told he died in the service. It's totally not true. But to this day, Laura Lee, me and my dad have the best relationship. He is the most wonderful man that a daughter can ask for. And I love him to pieces.
0: Mm, well, you deserve that. You Absolutely deserve that. What is your relationship with your family? I'm assuming assuming with the title Life with My Idiot Family, it might not be great, but um, what is that like now?
1: Well, you know, and I tell everybody that are especially survivors, you bring in into your life, who you choose to have in your life. I choose not to have my stepfather, my perpetrator, not to have my mother, not to have my three half sisters, who are my stepfather's daughters, into my life. My biological dad, his family, I have a half brother. I choose them. But most important, I choose my friends. You know, I have friends in my life that are my sisters, I am so close to them. And that's, that's the whole key. When you're an adult, you pick, you have that authority to bring in the people you want and the other ones, forget it. I have people that say, Kathy, how can you do that? How can you not be a part of your mother's life? Well, how can she do that? How can she not protect me when I was younger?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, I I am actually going through something similar. I mean, my mom didn't know that I was being abused by my father. Uh I don't believe she did. Um but you know she's she's at this age where and this is kind of her and I talk about this a lot. It's her mantra is, you know, if you don't think about it, it'll, you know, basically go away. Um mm-hmm. and when she found out, she was like I'm leaving. I'm, you know, I'm I'm going to I'm not staying here. I'm not staying with him. And I was like, "Wow, that that's big deal. Cause you know, my mom doesn't do well with change. Um, come to find out she, she didn't. And I kind of saw that coming. My dad is dealing with some, some health issues and I don't see her being able to leave, you know, at, not at her age, but what struck me as an issue was after knowing everything I've been through, she asked me when i was going to come visit and when and i I obviously said no i'm not not going near him and she said well can't you just forgive and forget and i (laughs) was just i was upset about it i was really it tore me up for a little bit and i stopped taking her calls i stopped responding um and then i actually did an, an mdma session where, um psychedelic therapy, where I actually was able, <laughs> it was actually a really intense session where at the beginning of it, I su- suddenly started feeling this overwhelming loss of my own daughter, just losing her. I don't know. I just didn't want to think about it. And I remember starting to freak out. And then my therapist or my, my the person who was with me um, kind of uh, supervising was like what are you feeling and I said I was like I'm feeling like I've lost my daughter like something bad has happened to her and I can't I can't see her anymore and they said well what are you what can you connect that to and immediately I thought that's my mother my mother has lost me and that feeling was so overwhelming that she has nothing she can do except to pretend it never happened and the feeling that I was getting when I was feeling that I kept on trying, like shaking my head. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't want to feel this. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to see this. Um, but then I realized like, I guess I felt a little compassion for her because it's like, she, she's feels stuck. And the only thing she can do is just to pretend everything's okay and kind of get herself off of the, off the hook. And And that was, that was really hard for me. It, it made, it did, create empathy for her, for me. But obviously I still have to choose my happiness over, you know, whatever triggers she might accidentally push, not intentionally, you know, even if she's yeah. trying, but I can. But
1: I can... It, it's funny. It's funny you said that because I, I do feel a little sorry for my mother. You know, I just... But it's the life that she chose, you know, I feel sorry that she's not in a, she's not in a happy place. And I can't picture her being happy. But it's not my problem, right? You know. And, and a lot of people will say, get over it. You know, I went to a counselor, the last counselor that I saw. And she said, her advice to me was, Kathy, you need to forget about it and go on with your life. I'm, I'm thinking I'm paying you a $20 copay and you're telling me to forget about it. Like my family, you're watching the clock. So I feel uneasy as soon as I walk into your office, but you just can't forget about it. But, you know, I tell survivors, but don't let it, don't let it ruin your life. You know, don't let it ruin your happiness because it'll, it will affect your health, mm-hmm. but don't let them ruin your life. But you're, you're never going to forget about it. I don't no. know of survivors that can forget about it. You know, I can tell you when I was younger, I can think, I can visualize my stepfather coming into the bathroom, unlocking that door with a screwdriver that I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. letting himself in the bathroom. You know, I can remember that like it happened today. Yeah. But but you have to self help, you know, go for those walks, take that bubble bath, go for that massage, you know, you need to do things for yourself, eat that half gallon of ice cream, (laughs) you know, do something that's going to make you happy, because you deserve it, right? You know, you've been through the hell and back and you deserve to be happy.
0: Yeah, well, PTSD, I mean, like you were just saying, it, you, you can remember it like it was just then. And I'm not, I'm just, maybe I'm just assuming, but for me, I can imagine like an, a door unlocking, triggering that the sound of a door unlocking, triggering that, you know, and even though it's probably someone just unlocking the door, you go back to that past reality that happened, that experience that happened to you, your body does that, you know, and it'll manifest your, your, your fears, your, your anxiety, it'll immediately put you in fight or flight mode. And however you dealt with it, then is it, it, it's, it's difficult. And I don't think you can just forget. It comes out in different ways. It's their, their triggers right. and um, yes, you can heal from it. I think choosing to heal
1: is, is
0: how you move forward.
1: Absolutely. And, and write things down, you know, writing things down seems to help. Like I said, when I wrote the book, me and my husband, I think that really helped to write things down. It put things into a whole different perspective. And it's just, it, it helped. It helped me. Yeah. And um, like I said, counseling, um, I, I do advise counseling. However, there are counselors that just do not get it, (laughs) but, and it's hard, it's hard to then you have to go tell your story all over again. Right. And I get that it's hard telling your story once is hard, but I did, I found a, a male counselor and I see him maybe once a year, you know, and I talk about him in the book and during my trial, he came to my trial and that's somebody that i can trust and i can open up and he can understand my story and so i i definitely recommend finding a counselor but a counselor that's for you you need to feel safe you need to understand what that counselor's saying and if that counselor doesn't if you're not on the same wave leave we talked about
0: a trial You've been involved in a lot of things. You know, you were involved with legislation to help victims of child abuse, including yourself. Can you talk a little bit about
1: that? So, when the priest abuse came out, they started talking about priest abuse. And that was in 2002. And that's when I really started to think and really start to be angry about what had happened. And I thought to myself, it wasn't just priest that abused it was people like my stepfather so they had a number to call it was a hotline one 800 dial a lawyer which they still have in Massachusetts every October during domestic violence month and I called the number and I told them what had happened and I said what can I do about what he did to me because I'm angry right mm-hmm. and they said sorry Kathy there's nothing you can do statute limitations time's out your time is over mm. and I'm like Oh no, <laughs> that did not sit well with me. So um so I fought and I fought for a long time. I would make calls, I would send emails, I would get on the phone, take trips to the Boston State House so much that I had one of the aides say, Kathy, you're bugging me. I'm like, too bad. I'm a taxpayer, do your job, you know. I'm <laughs> glad I'm bugging you because there are over six thousand bills at the Boston State House. You have to be that squeaky wheel, and that's exactly what I was. And so, statute limitations is the time frame of when you can go forward with what happened to you, and it varies from crime to crime and state to state. But in Massachusetts, for criminal, there's two. There's criminal and there's civil. Criminal statute limitations was changed on september 21st 2006 and it was changed where a survivor could be 31 years old but after that law changed september 21st 2006 a person can be the age 43. so it went from 31 to 43. Wow. i couldn't do the criminal the criminal which a criminal if you won your case the perpetrator would have to do jail time and register as a sex offender I couldn't do it, I was too old. So then I fought for the civil. Civil statute limitations was changed on June 26, 2014. And that was a huge change, meaning that a person prior to June 26, 2014, could be up to the age of 21 years old and go forward with the civil lim- civil case but it got extended to the age of 53. So from 21 to 53, that was a huge increase. Civil is monetary. And that's what I took my stepfather through a four-day jury trial in federal court in Springfield. And my trial started a year later, November 2nd, 2015, for a four-day jury trial. And it was up to the jurors to decide if he was guilty or not guilty. So, and that's what he decided. He did not want a a judge to decide his fate. So it was up to the jurors to decide. And it was hard. It was hard facing him because I hadn't seen him in so long. Um, You know, being in that courtroom. And I remember my husband saw him walk by. My husband had never met him before. So he walked by and my husband like lunged at him. (laughs) And he said, Go ahead, touch me. I'm not a little girl. And the next day he told the judge, he said, I don't want him here during that trial. He threatened me. And Judge Katherine Robertson said, no, he's allowed to come in. And I was so mad at my husband, Gary. I said, What did you do? I said, You're gonna not be allowed to be there for my trial. I was so mad. i was like, you're gonna go to jail and blah blah blah. And now later on, I'm like, I'm glad that he did that to him. Because right, he should have he should have done what he did. But Laura Lee, going through that trial was again reliving your past. It was tough. You know, it was a tough four day jury trial, but I'm glad I did it. I paved the way for other survivors. In fact, after my trial, a male went forward and won his trial. Wow! But it was it was tough. I mean, he didn't get an attorney. He represented it himself. He thought he could get a court appointed and that's only for criminal. So he would ask me questions and it was I was probably like 10 feet away from him ask me questions, ask me questions. And then the judge dismissed the panel and he goes, I'm not done with her yet. Asking him, asking me questions. And the judge says, well, tomorrow you, Kathy will go back up on the stand and you can ask her more questions. And I really, I mean, I thought it was over. I'm gonna go home, have a glass of wine, relax. But it wasn't over. I had to get up on that stand the next day. And I remember my husband saying, Kathy, this is your one and only chance. You're gonna go back up on that stand. If there's something you need to say, you need to say it. And I did, I wrote it on my hand so that I remembered because I was so nervous. I went up on that stand and he said to me, I bet you're glad that my name was in the paper and I, you've been on TV and I lost my friends. I bet you're happy. And I said, you know what? I am, because you are a rapist. And I had those that word on my hand to remember to call him a rapist face to face. And I felt really good. And he said to me, I didn't ask you that, just answer the question. And the judge said, She is answering the question. Mm. And that that was huge. What was the outcome? The outcome that the jurors found him guilty. Good. So, but wow. like I said, he didn't have to do jail time. But you know, Laura Lee, I got justice. Uh, accountability was there. And I got to tell my story. And these jurors, they cited for me. There was no evidence, really. But it was his word against my word. And really, who lies about something like this? Yeah. Who actually devotes their life to changing laws, going through this facing him. But you know, maybe when I was younger, if he only admitted what he did was wrong, and apologized, maybe I wouldn't have done maybe I wouldn't have gone as far as I did. But to this day, he still denies it. So the trial went on, he wrote writes to the judge and says, I want this to all go away. <laughs> and. So the trial ends November 4th, 2015. And I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Finally, come March, the judge writes me back and said, this is so ordered that he was found guilty Mm. because I thought I was going to have to go through the whole thing again. You know, Mm. if you had a retrial. So, but I'm glad I did it. You know, I devoted my life to this i'm going to be 59 years old and again i've been doing this over 20 years public speaker out speaking to colleges police academy because he was an auxiliary police officer threatening me with the gun i i think that it's very educational for police officers to hear from a survivor um nurses you know I, i write to everybody you know, one person that I wrote to and um, was the president. Right. I wrote to President Biden and um, and I sent my book and I'm like, you know, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. I just wanted to get the message out to him. And he wrote me back and I have it framed. And wow. he has a speech problem. And he wrote, Kathy, thank you for your your book. You know, and he wrote that in the letter, and it's just, you know, because I'm trying, Laura Lee, to get it more into the schools. We need to educate our young kids. The young kids are at home, especially during COVID. They're in the homes with the perpetrator. These kids need to know that it's okay to tell, because the perpetrators, don't tell, don't tell, you're going to get in trouble. Right. Right. They need to know, you know, I wouldn't share my gory detailed story, but to let these kids know it's okay to tell, it's not your fault, and you will get the help that you need. I was young, I didn't tell and I wish that I did. And that's the, that's the main message that I want to tell these young ones because it's going to affect them it's going to affect their relationships, it's going to affect their schoolwork. You know, they need to live and and live a happy childhood, unlike I did.
0: Mm. Wow. Did you realize that you would be this powerful voice in child advocacy?
1: No. (laughs) I was a quiet, quiet, shy kid. I mean, petrified of everything. So nervous. I pulled out all my eyelashes, my eyebrows. I fainted all the time. Um, baggy clothes to keep them away from me. You know, I just totally different from what I am today, you know, going out and speaking to these perpetrators. I go to the correctional facilities. People think I'm crazy. Kathy, how can you go in and talk to these level two and level three sex offenders, male and female, because females do perpetrate. And I just think if I share my story, not in detail, Maybe when they get released, they won't re-offend because mm-hmm. they need to know that we as victims, survivors, thrivers, we remember what you did. Mm. And not to do it again, you know.
0: And we will talk. Everyone's we voice will is talk. getting louder and louder. And I yes.
1: think yes.
0: you being such a powerful voice it's obviously encouraging others to be to have this powerful voice as well to say me too and because i i'm realizing how important it is i'm going to speak up and then it's just going to trickle down where it isn't going to i i i hope it's not going to be a problem for people to be able to 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 speak up because it's something that we talk about more frequently
1: Right. Right. And why not? You know, why don't the schools open their doors? And I tell them, have, I don't need to just talk to the kids, have the parents come, you know, Mm -hmm. you bring in speakers on bullying, drugs, alcohol, suicide. Are those the reasons? Because they've been sexually abused? That's maybe why they're cutting themselves? Could be but you need to talk about sexual abuse. These superintendents are telling me not happening in my school. The reported statistics are one in every four girls before her 18th birthday and one in every six boys before his 18th birthday. The statistics are huge. And you know what? I can guarantee that it's happening in every single school.
0: Absolutely. I absolutely believe that. And I feel like for a superintendent to say, no, it's not. That's just ignorance or they're, they're, they're hiding something. They know it's happening and they just don't want to talk about it.
1: They're, they're doing like the parents are shut up. Don't open the door. It's less work. Yeah, but less work. How can you sleep at night knowing that you're not helping children to stop their abuse? How do you sleep at night? but, but like I said, I think my book, I think it's very helpful. It talks about me as young and it goes all the way through the trial, even talking about the deposition. And um, I, I've, I think I shared with you, Laura Lee, that I'm really excited because I think it's going to happen this month. Um, I have, I wrote a kid's book.
0: So during oh, COVID, wow.
1: uh, during COVID, During COVID, um, I met an illustrator, Deb, and she is wonderful. She's got my dog in there and she's, she's so detailed. She's got hearts on the bed sheets and um, the title of the book is I love you so much that I'm really excited about it.
0: Well, a lot of parents don't know how to talk to their, their children, you know, and, and from what I've all. From what I've learned, you need to talk to them at an early age, as early as possible, as in infancy. You know, consent and boundaries, all of those things.
1: Um, and and their private parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very important. And people will say, "Well, my child will tell me if something's happening." That is so untrue. They're keep, right. they're being told to keep it quiet. I mean the youngest i heard of a of a child being sexually abused is 2 months old yeah it's sad but it's happening these perpetrators are touching these babies because the babies don't have that voice you need to educate these young ones to tell you know their private parts are for them use the correct terminology use the words penis vagina because this way here a disclosure is not missed if you call a little girl's vagina a cookie, that little girl goes to school and says to the teacher, "He took he touched my cookie." What's a te- what's a teacher going to do? "Here's another cookie now, honey. Now go sit down." Right. But if that little girl tells the teacher, "He touched my vagina," there's no, you know, way There's that, no mistaking that. That can be missed. Right. And if you teach them at a young age, it's not going to be so he, he, ha, ha.
0: Right. You know, exactly. it's not a joke. You do have so much more, so much more happening. Well, the
1: other thing, the, the other thing that, you know, Laura Lee is the book Life with My Idiot Family. I'm not sure if I showed this, um, but my husband is writing the screenplay and we're hoping to get it into a movie. You never know. Never say never. And if you don't try, the answer is no. So you have to keep going. You know, the book's gone to Reese Witherspoon and Oprah. And I'm trying to reach Sharon Stone, who was sexually abused her and her sister. And, you know, you just don't know. But I hope it becomes a movie because so many people, more people can go there and say, wow, me too. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And and it's hard. I get it. Survivors, sometimes you you can't bring this stuff into the home because the perpetrator's there. I mean, I have people that get the book or come to my house. I give them the book. They have to hide it in the trunk and go and read it, at, you know, in a park. Mm. But, you know, this way here, they can go to a movie and they can watch it and or listen to it on Audible like you did in the shower. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so, I did. <laughs> you know, it's nine hours long. So it's a long shower, (laughs) but, but I'm glad that I did it. And, you know, Laura Lee, my, my door is open to everybody and anybody because I know I've been there. I've walked in their footsteps and no, I don't have the answer to everything, but networking is so important. And if I don't have the answer I can be sure to find an answer for them. They can reach out. I'm on social media, all over the place. And, um, you know, I, I hope they read my book. It's on Amazon. And it's so hard, but I always, I feel like I have to beg, but to for people just do a review because it helps me as the screenplay is coming. Just go on there and write good resource, you know, but it helps me. Every morning I go and I check, somebody write a review, and that makes my day. Little oh. things, the little things that make me smile.
0: Well, definitely. I was. You are the ultimate trauma survivor thriver. You've been through so much, and you're doing so much incredible work that you should be incredibly proud of. And I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. I'm sure you know. But um, I really, really appreciate you coming on and telling your story and writing your book. And I'm,
1: I'm just in now awe. You're gonna make my eyes. Work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so just, sensitive. <laughs>
0: oh well, it's it's true. Do you do you have anything else that you would like to add?
1: You know, tell survivors baby steps. You know, if you don't want to talk about it today. Fine. You know, but the best thing I did was tell, talk about it. It's not your fault. It never will be your fault. I self blamed too. Mm-hmm. I said, Why didn't I tell? Did I like it? No, it's never, ever your fault. Mm-hmm. And talk about it. And those of you that are listening, if somebody says, I want to talk to you, I don't care if you have to go to the bathroom, hold it listen to that person, because if you make them wait a minute, they're going to say, oh, wasn't important, or I forgot Mm -hmm. what I had to say. Take that time, because that person trusted you to listen to their story. Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate, I appreciate you.
0: That was child advocate Kathy Picard, author of Life With My Idiot Family, A True Story of Survival, Courage, and Justice Over Childhood Sexual Abuse. To learn more about Kathy, please visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's letter A, tstpodcast.com. There you can find the link to purchase her book. You can also find my social media platforms at the top of my page. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider in your inbox monthly. You've been listening to A Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Benstock. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Take care.